Behind the Bite podcast is part of a network of podcasts that are good for the world. Check out podcasts like the Full of Shift podcast, After the First Marriage podcast, and Eating Recovery Academy over at practiceofthepractice.com backslash network. Welcome to Behind the Bite podcast. This podcast is about the real life struggles women face with food, body image, and weight. We're here to help heal, inspire, and create better, healthier lives. Welcome. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to Behind the Bite podcast. I'm really excited to have a really exciting guest today. Uh, We're going to delve into some really exciting topics and uh, always, I know, love when I have a another eating disorder specialist on the program where we can just delve into um, you know, lots of different areas uh, that are around body image and eating disorders. So uh, we get into a lot of different things. So I just want to introduce her and then delve right in. Uh, Dr. Jillian Lampert is the chief strategy officer of Acanto Health, the parent company of Veritas Collaborative and the EMILY program. Uh, She has an extensive range of policy, clinical research, education, teaching, and program development experience in the area of eating disorders. She is the author of numerous book chapters and articles addressing the nutritional treatment of eating disorders, body image, sports participation, adolescent health, and disordered eating, and she regularly speaks regionally and nationally on numerous eating disorder-related topics. Additionally, she is co-founder and president of the REDC, the National Consortium representing eating disorders care focused on treatment standards, best practices, access to care, and collaborative research. For the last 17 years, she has been an adjunct graduate faculty in the Department of Food Science and Nutrition at the University of Minnesota. Well, Jillian, welcome to the show. Very excited to have you here. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So yeah, we could probably... uh, delve into so many different things. But before we do that, uh, just curious for, you know, people who maybe don't know you, um, how did you get into this work? Like, how did you land here? Oh, it was a, it was a bit of a journey. I, uh, how did I get here? I, the short version, I was going to go to medical school as a six-year-old. This was not, not actually start as a six-year-old, but when I was six, that was what I was going to do, go to medical school. And so I grew up thinking I was going to go to medical school and I went to college and got an undergraduate degree in biology because I was going to go to medical school. Uh, And in my sophomore year of college, I decided I didn't want to go to medical school. And for a variety of reasons, including I didn't really like the focus that some of my classmates had on uh, medical school and being a physician as a way to have prestige and uh, sort of an overemphasis on finances sort of financial benefit of being a physician. And I just decided at that point, I didn't really want to do that. And I I had taken a class that had a, a significant component around nutrition. And I really found that fascinating. And I thought, well, this is like healthcare medicine. It's in the realm. This nutrition thing is really interesting. And so I decided I wanted to uh, do something in nutrition. So I called my parents and said, hey, I don't think I want to go to medical school. And I want to do something else that I'm not quite sure, but I think it probably involves graduate school and I'm going to figure it out. And my parents said uh, two things. One, they said, uh, you actually have a scholarship 
to finish your biology degree. So whatever you're going to do, you need to finish that degree so that you can keep your scholarship. Uh, now, being the parent of a 19-year-old, soon-to-be college uh, sophomore, I understand a bit more about where they were coming from with that financial concern. Uh, but the second thing they said was, you uh, you don't really know what you're saying because you have an eating disorder, and that's why you want to go into nutrition. And I said, well, that's it's true. I do have an eating disorder. I had, had an eating disorder for about seven years, uh, and I'm very grateful to be uh, alive and recovered. Uh, but I said, I don't, I don't think that's it. I don't think I want to go into nutrition because of this eating disorder. And we continued to have a difference of opinion for the next uh, probably six or eight years, uh, even well into my recovery. And I, I ended up pursuing my nutrition graduate school theory and ended up with a master's of public health and a master of science and a PhD and a bunch of fellowships. And so really sort of dove headlong into this nutrition thing, became a dietitian. And I still wasn't quite sure if there was a connection between uh, my my now in recovery from my eating disorder and my career. I really didn't know that there was, didn't really quite know what that would look like. And I, in my dietetic internship training, I trained at a program at the University of Minnesota that had one of the few eating disorder programs in the country at that point. And the rest of the internship class was really wary of the eating disorder unit. They didn't feel comfortable there. They were afraid of the patients. They just didn't like the unit and they didn't know anything about eating disorders and it seemed all wrong. And the first day I walked on the floor, I just felt like, oh, well, these are my people. This is what I understand. I get this. And uh, it was a bit of a like, oh, maybe I'll do this. And uh, so over the course of the next uh, handful of years, I, I was lucky enough to sort of be in the right place at the right time with the right people, was able to, uh, in my first job as a dietitian, start a small eating disorder program, which really launched uh, into a, a, a now 30 years of involvement with eating disorder programs of all all sizes and kinds and settings and all of that. So it really uh, was happenstance, long story short, was happenstance that I I happened to uh, follow my my intuition, my inner wisdom around what I wanted to do or what I didn't want to do with my career. And then the rest sort of found me. And I've been really grateful to be able to do all the things I I, I get to do in the in the field. Right. That's a great story. Just, you know, following your path and journey and here you are. And, um, you know, also, just, um, you know, I love when people talk about that they're in recovery as well. Um, because, of, you know, I kind of say this on the podcast, but I think the People still say like, oh, no, I can never fully recover. That's not a thing. And um, I don't know how much you encounter that. But, you know, it was, when someone says they are in re they recovered, I was kind of like pointed out like, see, someone else. <laughs> yep. Happens. yep. I, de I definitely believe in full recovery. I, I also definitely believe that I have, uh, you know, the genetic predisposition and the neurobiological underpinnings to have been, you know, the perfect uh, storm to end up with an eating disorder. And I will continue to be, a you know, high noticing, detail oriented, uh, sort of highly activated person. That's just how I'm wired. And that's what put me at risk, at least in large part to get an eating disorder. But it doesn't doesn't mean I have to have an eating disorder, but I'm probably not going to not be those sort of traits. And I've uh, hopefully managed to kind of apply those uh, for the good instead of uh, have them be, be hijacked and sort of turned against me. Um, so I really like the the trait-based research that's uh, been ongoing in the last uh, decade or so and the neurobiological perspectives of eating disorders that just really help people to be able to separate. Like, yeah, you get to be a maybe highly 
you know, noticing maybe more anxious, maybe more whatever it is uh, that you are, uh, but you don't have to have an eating disorder. You can just be who you are. So speaking of that trait in particular, um, how do you think that plays out with someone who is on social media so much and looking at all these reels and photos and other influencers like posting all the time? Like, how do you think that plays out right now? Because, you know, you and I am imagining like, at least I know for me, I didn't have social media growing up well into like, you know, 30s or so like I, it was a long time coming like even now I'm not on it all that much but I can't even imagine when I had my eating disorder like how oh, that would have been that would have been awful uh, yeah 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 no it, I mean it I think back when when I had my eating disorder that you know the comparisons were the people I knew around me and then you know tv movies magazines like magazines were a were a big thing, right? That's what we had in terms of looking at other people. And it depended on what you had access to and you know what came to your house in the mail or you bought at the store. And now, oh my gosh, it's just everywhere, right? That social media allows so much more exposure to ways to compare ourselves. Um, and I think that's the that's really the the kind of the darker side of social media that you can uh, have such an array of people and uh, people from all over, not just people you know, people you don't know, people you will never know. Uh, you can compare yourself to them so easily. I do think there's a really positive uh, side of social media that I always feel like I have to have to hold up a little bit that that from a connection perspective and particularly among people that are marginalized uh, or stigmatized, that the connection of of that social media can provide so that if you're a 13-year-old kid growing up somewhere where you don't know anybody else who thinks that they might be trans or thinks they might be bi or thinks they might be whatever, uh, that if you can go on social media, you can find a whole world full of people that are are like you. And we know that we we feel more connected when we can see other people who are like us. And so social media really gives us that opportunity. So I really appreciate that about social media. The pieces that are really tricky with social media are that it's so, so, so much content. So if you have those traits of being a high noticer and being able to take in a lot of information, whew, social media gives you a lot to notice and a lot to take in and a lot to compare yourself to. And it also, from a neurobiological sort of psychological perspective, right, social media is designed to to work, you know, with, I guess, uh, probably against, but sort of like work within the human psyche and, and how we respond psychologically to stimuli. And the algorithms for social media are set up to continue to pull us in, continue to give us those little dopamine hits, continue to keep us in the rabbit hole. And so we end up in a rabbit hole of comparison for a really long time. And the more you compare in a certain way, the more of that content you're fed. And so really quickly, people can find that that they're comparing themselves to to just sort of one view of of how people look and you're stuck in that spot. And it's really hard. I, I've talked to clients my whole career, right? That in the in the history of comparing, how many times does somebody with an eating disorder come out positively from that comparison? Like we just don't come out positively. The other Thing we're looking at so often comes out more positively in our minds. And so I worry a lot about the degree to which social media allows us to just compare, compare, compare. You know, and 
with that too, you know, I've had some um, previous podcasts talking just about that, but people have been asking me, and I don't know what you're hearing. Okay, so they've been seeing a lot more, you know, uh, social media influencers coming out talking about like body positivity and showing the before and afters of like, okay, this is my picture. This is my real photo, right? This is really me. And yeah, this is me. If I put the filter on, this is me. If I pose differently, like, come on guys, let's call it out. This is all fake. Um, and more people are, you know, I guess, you know, even brands like Dove and things like that, they're coming out like with people with, real bodies right like rihanna and her line of like lingerie and saying well is that having an impact is that helping like get rid of like this what you're talking about right the comparison in the negative way and actually promoting like this more body positivity or people feeling better about their bodies or promoting like more of like okay let's have more acceptance of all body shapes and sizes like i don't know what do you think about all this yeah, I I agree. There's so much more accessible. And you're right. People are being more direct about like, this is what I really look like. Um, and I have mixed thoughts about it. I think that I think uh, the idea that that and I haven't done this analysis, but I my hunch is if you looked at all the pictures that are that like, um, very cultivated images compared to the sort of quote unquote real, like, here's what I really look like. You probably have a lot more cultivated <laughs> images than the real images. So one of my curiosities is like, why, why do we not have more real and less, less of the, the not real? Like what if we, if we really had a more body positive, body accepting world, would we need all the filters? Would we need all the, the highly curated, highly cultivated sort of set of photos. Um, so I, I wonder about that. I think it's uh, in some ways, um, in some ways, I think, you know, the devil's advocate side of my brain says, well, you know, if I, if, if I'm an influencer and I'm not even suggesting maybe they're consciously doing this, but like if I'm an influencer and I'm showing all these pictures of me in a, in a highly curated kind of way, and then I post occasional, like, this is what I really look like. Uh, and that really helps my followers to feel like I'm more real. So they really, uh, you know, sort of applaud that and follow me even more fervently. Then I'm going to keep putting up all these like highly curated, highly uh, filtered and posed and everything photos that I'm, I'm still selling the like, but you could look like this too with the right filter, the right angle, the right makeup, the right whatever. Uh, and then we get into you know, product advertising, advertising in that, that really feels like an interesting slippery slope. I really applaud the like, here's who I am. This is me. This is, this is what I really look like. I just wonder why we don't get to have more of that. And I think we see, you know, when we look at the research on it, you see a difference in, in all of the, the positive and less positive impacts of social media on, on us viewers. Uh, when you look at the, uh, the the kind of social media. So there's this cool study that was done uh, by a, a group in England a number of handful of years ago, looking at um, comparing Facebook and Instagram and YouTube, and it didn't compare TikTok because it wasn't a thing yet when they did the study. Um, so they compared Facebook and Instagram and YouTube on a number of different dimensions on things like did it um, decrease anxiety, did it increase uh, uh, depression, did it uh, impact body image, did it impact isolation, did it impact connection, did it impact our sleep, uh, sense of belonging, sense of community, all these aspects of things that in theory we we get from social media or we go to social media for to build a community and have connection. And 
across the board, all the social media platforms uh, take away lots of our sleep. So that's a ubiquitous sort of not such a great op- you know, outcome that we lose a lot of sleep because of social media, because of the, the compelling nature of it that keeps us looking at it for a long time. And time can pass before we realize it has. Uh, but when they looked at the shorter forms like Facebook and Instagram that are those images posed, filtered and the like, um, that actually in- anxiety increased, depression increased, body image concerns increased, connection uh, with people actually didn't increase. Um, there were some community building pieces that did increase if people were able to find a community that that resonated with them. But on the whole, they were not actually, didn't actually have a very positive outcome. And then compared to YouTube at that point, which was the longer form, you know, longer videos where um, people, I, I think the the idea behind the data outcome is that <clears throat> on YouTube, people are themselves, like if you're on YouTube for half hour a day, 15 minutes a day, every day, day in and day out, it gets harder and harder and harder to cultivate anything sort of close to, you know, sort of perfection or a, a, a unrealistic or uh, inaccurate kind of um, view of yourself. You're just sort of yourself because you're just there all the time on your on your YouTube channel. And so the outcome for YouTube was that that actually found positive, uh, positive connection, positive self-esteem, positive, more positive body image, less, uh, less depression, less anxiety. And the theory was that exactly what we're what we're talking about, my very long story short, is that the the more real that the people on social media were to the viewers, the the better the outcome. And the the less real, the more cultivated, the more curated, the less good outcomes. And so I think that's a really interesting thing to think about when we're talking to people about social media use, is that the the influencer or the the person who's posting, uh, you don't know how much time they spent before they posted that photo, right? They don't. You don't know how much time they spent filtering and cropping and and posing and taking a million photos before they put that one, which might look like a easy breezy, just you know, candid snapshot. Very likely, it's not. Uh, and so, when we look at that as compared to you know the YouTube outcomes, I think the message is: you know, how do you follow people? How do you view the content you view? Um, that's as close to real as possible. That really is a, a real human. Um, and I think with, you know, with the rise in TikTok, we have my my joke about YouTube was like, you know, TikTok is the Twitter of YouTube because it's a short attention span. It's a very short time. And it's it can be, it's easier to highly curate it because you can just do the same thing over and over again to get a 30 minute or 30 second TikTok post. It's harder to do the same 30 minute YouTube video over and over again until you get the one you like. So I, I think there's a lot to the um, perception of how positive, how real, how authentic it is that we need to ask ourselves. Well, and I wonder how many people are actually asking those things. Right. That's the problem is once you see something that the brain's taking it in as this is real. Even if people are questioning it, I still think they think, well, it's there. And the brain's not that sophisticated, right? Right. That's the problem. That's the problem. Yeah. And the brain, the brain is that, you know, we when you look at the literature on dopamine and the dopamine spikes that happen when we get interesting things, maybe we see or experience interesting things. It's really the anticipation that spikes our dopamine. It's really the like, what's the next one? And so social media is a perfect place to get a whole slew of dopamine spikes because you're going to keep scrolling for the next one or you're going to go down that rabbit hole of the next one. Uh, so I think it is. I think you're right. Our brains are like more sort of responsive to that. Like, is there more? Is there more? Is there more? Is there more than 
my critically reflecting on this photo that I'm seeing and wondering about the <laughs> how it was set up. Um, I do think it's part of the social media literacy we need to be practicing as adults and teaching kids to really acknowledge that the the entrancement, you know, the entrancing aspect of social media is really real to our brain and that it does require boundaries and guidelines and ways to take care of ourselves. Or before we know it, we're really, really giving time and influence to to social media that we might not want to. You know, as you're talking, it's just making me wonder a couple of things. One is, you know, is it really helping though? Like looking at these things, even if someone is questioning it, maybe they are doing a good job. Okay. Challenging if these images are real and looking at, okay, these are, there's a whole slew now of different bodies and shapes and sizes I'm looking at. Is that actually really having an impact on if people are more accepting of their own bodies and not having so much negative, like a self-talk or thoughts about their own bodies and saying, okay, I'm seeing more realistic images Put out there so is this helping like the the fat phobia that's out there is this helping with the diet culture or people feeling like their value and worth is based on their appearance and their size and their shape and all that or or not like what's the impact right yeah i think i th- i would i would guess that on the whole it's probably not helping a whole lot i think it's great to have you know if people are going to be on social media to have a, a a wider array of things to look at i always encourage people you know that one of the great ways you can see variety in people is to look at a bunch of people in real life, right? Like we actually don't have to go to our phone to see people. We could, you know, go to the mall or we could go to the park or we could go, you know, to Target or whatever. Uh, and and really seeing real people and and using that noticing for real people because I think that, you know, there's there's so many things to think about with that. But if you're looking at a screen, you're just getting that two-dimensional aspect of a person in their life, even if you're watching a video. Uh, But if you can go out in public and see people of a variety of shapes and sizes living life and actually experiencing joy, because I think at the kind of at the the root of a lot of it is like, I, I, you know, if my body's not the right whatever, then I'm not going to be able to be happy because of a, B, and C, or I won't be accepted because of A, B, and C. And I think when we when we encourage ourselves to look at real people out in you know out in the in the real world, you see people of all shapes and sizes expressing joy or frustration or tiredness or sadness or whatever you can think of because you see people live their lives that way. And you can see real examples of people who maybe are in larger bodies that are living joyfully. And you can see examples of people who are in smaller bodies that don't look that happy. And that it helps us to notice and understand maybe if we keep noticing that people have experiences, have emotions, have relationships, have great things happen, have terrible things happen, really kind of across a body spectrum. And it also allows us to notice when there, when we see weight stigma or fat phobia in 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 front of us, to be able to say maybe perhaps make that decision to be bold and brave and say that's not okay, that it's not okay to make fun of somebody for the way they look. It's not okay to judge somebody like that. It's not okay to comment on on somebody's food or body. Um, and you can do that in lots of 
small or or larger ways. Um, with social media, even if you see a lot of great po- body positivity, if you read the comments, you're going to see a lot of not so positive because people, for whatever reason, I've it's one of the great mysteries of the world to me is why people spend so much time online writing nasty things. Like, I don't know what that does. I'm not sure what the, you know, why that feels compelling to people, but there's a lot of negativity there too. So if you can be part of bringing a little bit of change to the world in real life, I think that actually holds a lot more promise. Uh, Or maybe we'll spill over into social media if we could do that with each other. Uh, That's my sort of hope for people. And I, and I encourage people to think about that. And they're like, oh, that's, that's really scary. I can just do it on my phone and like scroll. (laughs) It seems safer. Like, well, you don't have to do anything. You can just go to Target and walk around and look at people and and just observe like a like a social scientist. What do you see? Imagine you're walking around with a little imaginary notebook, writing things down. What do you see out in the real world that can help inform your perspective? That's such a great thing. I often tell people, I'm like, just sit at Starbucks for like an hour and just see like we're all these perfect people like hanging out because there aren't any like I, I don't see these magical filtered people like hanging out all over the place like there's right looking people out there like everywhere right yeah turns out they don't all have like the perfect sun set right over their shoulder all the time like crazy hair yeah yeah amazing yeah. It is amazing. I do think like, why do we care so much about the the perfect? Like I'm fascinated by that, that there's some something about us as people that that's compelling, right? That they like, we like the fantasy that we like to think there might be. Uh, and we're certainly sold that over and over and over and over again. And maybe that's why we like to think that because we're sold through product marketing, all the things that in theory could make our make us look like that too, or make our lives be, you know, perfect like that too, that I can't quite tell if it's, you know, which, which comes first, the human desire to, to want that because it's unattainable and interesting to us or the message that we should want that. And so we do, I kind of think it's the latter. Well, you know, as you were talking about the traits of someone with an eating disorder, this perfectionism, I mean, that plays right into that as well. Right. So you got the double whammy here with. Right. Right. Also, like, oh, I can, I want to be perfect, but I'm not perfect. Then what does that mean? Like, oh my gosh, like this is just an awful thing here with these filtering apps and the ability to do that. It's just, that's the standard that's so high that's um, attainable and reach. I mean, it, you know, when you and I were younger, it's like the magazines was one thing. They didn't have the filtering apps and all this. This is like a nightmare. This is so much worse. It is. It is. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And the brain can't. Can't so you know can't distinguish as clearly as we'd like it to between seeing a photo of something that's highly filtered and highly edited and seeing a photo of a person that's real. The brain's like, oh, two people, mm-hmm. and so it it undercuts the or sort of gives credence to the notion that like maybe I could look like that, even if somebody looks at it and says, oh, nobody really looks like that. The brain's like, well, that person did because I just saw a picture of that. So it it really is a question I think of how do you modulate exposure. Like, how do you know if you're spending too much time on social media? How, what do you do about it? How do you take care of yourself? I think those are the questions we need to be asking, you know, ourselves and the people that we're surrounded by. Well, you know, I'm playing into this and I'm kind of kind of staying on the theme of like, are we really getting better in society with accepting 
different sizes of bodies and trying to move past the fat phobia and all that. I don't know. Um, hoping like people say, oh, I'm seeing, like I said, more influencers that are promoting this and not promoting such diet, toxic diet culture. They're talking about it. It's more in media. But then at the same time, as you know, we were touching base a little bit before we hit record, then I, I'm so dismayed. And I'm wondering, like, I, I feel like sometimes, yes, we're making progress. We're talking about it more. It's like all over the place. We're getting more influencers that are like, you know, saying screw that, you know, screw the diet culture, all this. And then Ozempic hits and like, it's there's this mask craze. And it's like for people that like be on this quote unquote weight loss drug, that's not a weight loss drug. And they're coming out with more like different ones and they're running out and everyone's like still wanting this miracle drug to like be in smaller bodies, even if they don't have type two diabetes. And I'm going, okay, hold on. What's happening? Like, are we really making progress? Because people are really willing to like take a drug that they don't need and willing to like make themselves sick. Because there's a lot of really negative physical consequences to this that, that are coming out and they're still willing to do it and pay a lot of money for it just for that goal. And it's like, what? It's blowing my mind. I'm like, what are we making progress? I don't know. This is really discouraging. <laughs> Yeah, I think yeah, it is. I mean, I, I do think we're making progress in a, in a lot of ways. Like I think, uh, you know, I live in Minnesota. Target started in Minnesota. So I use Target in a lot of my examples. But I walk into Target, right? And I see that the pictures that hang above the clothing sections in Target. And there is variety in those pictures. And there wasn't five years ago, right? That's awesome. That is so great. Because what does that do? It shows day in, day out. When people walk into Target, they just see a variety of bodies up on those pictures. Even if they're not really paying attention, their brain sees it, it just filters in. And so that kind of exposure to variety, like if I looked around Target, I'd see people that kind of looked like those people, maybe wearing those outfits, maybe not, but I would see more variety and then it, it matches my reality. And so I think the more that the the images we see match our our reality or match reality, that's great progress because there it does tell our brains there is more variety. And look at those people are happy <laughs> because they're posed that way and smiling or whatever, but it communicates to our brain. Those people who are a variety of shapes and sizes and ages are are doing okay and they're okay as people. So I think it's it's great that we get more exposure to that. I love the the, the all the people who are trying to convey that message that variety is okay and that body shapes and sizes have variety and that's okay and that we don't have to negatively judge that. And I think the the you're right, it still exists that there's a huge overwhelming sense of of yeah, but in our society, right? Like, yes, that's great. There's variety and there's still an enormous amount of weight stigma, right? There's still an enormous amount of fat phobia and there's still an enormous amount of 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 mental health consequences that come from experiencing weight stigma and fat phobia. And so we have, you know, parents who don't want their kids to experience that. We have people who don't want to experience that. We have, you know, people who have experienced it who don't want to experience it again or more or all the time. And I think that's the piece that, you know, are we making progress there? I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe we're making more progress there, but, but that's where it's tricky, right? Because at the, you know, at the end of the day, we're talking about things like accepting that our bodies are not all going to be the same. And also accepting that if we really did 
connect with our bodies and and eat when our bodies were hungry and we were able to stop eating when our bodies were satisfied and we knew what satisfied felt like some of us don't have great receptors that tell our brain we're satisfied so don't really know what satisfied is which is what all those some of those weight loss medications are focused on is getting you know sort of a a, a satiety meter in there uh, but if we had the the space and the and the time and the permission from ourselves and others to say Am I hungry? How do I know if I'm hungry? What do I want? Do I have access to that? Do I am I food secure enough to be able to get that food at that time? And can I stop eating when I'm satisfied? Or am I worried that I won't have food if I don't keep eating now? I won't have food tomorrow, so I better eat now. There's so, such a complex interplay of different factors there. Plus, then it gets into emotions, which like we as you know, a general public aren't the best at talking about that. If people were really checked in with themselves and said, no, you know, I'm, I, I guess I'm not really hungry, but I sure am sad. Now, what do I do? Or I sure I'm frustrated. Now what do I do? And I, and I, I'm sure it's oversimplifying it, but I think that a lot that maybe we, we cling on to like the promise of diet culture, because if we don't, we have to really like fall back into this pool of like human emotion and communication and understanding our emotion and understanding our how our bodies feel. And that's just a lot for people to think about, I think. So it, it's it's a shortcut. You know, let's just stick to the diet culture, stick to fat phobia. That's really clear. I know the rules. Follow that. I think that that feels like what our society's almost kind of decided in a way, because talking about our feelings is really kind of messy <laughs> for for us in a lot of ways. Talking about therapy, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Even if we had, you know, clear communication with each other, what a concept. <laughs> that would be great. And there's a lot of people who don't learn good, clear communication skills. And and when it comes to what they and their bodies want, and it's all of that wrapped up that I think our diet culture and fat phobia is like our shorthand for keeping order, which is not helpful. Well, thank you kitchen of the choir with me here right um but right. you know for people listening you know it's like how often do people ask why do I have my relationship with food that I do or feel about my body the way I do or why am I eating right now or you know is it okay to eat what I'm eating like why do I feel the way I do about certain foods or you know there's a lot of underlying questions I don't think people are asking themselves much to your point they're staying on the surface and just saying like I just know I want to look like that and that will make me happy. And that people aren't really asking, like, really, is that really going to make you happy? Really? Right. Like, right. Yeah. 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 I think a lot about, you know, one of the things I say to people and they're like, oh, that's super overwhelming. What do I do about it? Or what do I do for my kids? And like, there's like one area that most people <clears throat> can identify with at least a little bit. Maybe it's happened to them once or it happens a lot where they just can't quite get dressed. Like they can't quite figure out what they want because nothing feels comfortable or it's not the right whatever. And it, it might be the same thing you just wore, right? There's nothing to do with the clothes because you you just wore it and it was fine. Uh, but to, to like pause in that moment and say, what's going on? Like, why can I not get dressed? This is what I, I, I sometimes do with myself and have, have conversations with my kid about like, why can't I get dressed right now? And I just stop in the middle of my room. Like, okay, what's going on? And it turns out it's, you know, it's usually because I'm like overtired or I'm stressed or I'm thinking about something else or I'm preoccupied or I'm rushed or I'm getting dressed to go somewhere I don't really want to go 
or I really would rather be doing something else than the thing I'm doing next. And it, you know, when I give myself just a, a minute to check in, it's like so not usually about the clothing or my body, but it can start there, right? I think so many people have that experience of like, oh, my body's all wrong. I can't get dressed. It's, you know, this, this, my body's too big and these pants are too small or this, whatever. And that can really be a gift to ourselves, right? To just pause and say, what's going on? And also, if we do that in front of kids, that's amazing. If we can, instead of in front of kids say like, oh, you know, I have to go on a diet tomorrow, or I wish I wouldn't even eaten that piece of chocolate cake, or, oh my gosh, I can't believe it's Girl Scout cookie season or whatever the things we say out loud in front of our kids who learn then that eating is somehow bad and looking that way is somehow bad. We could really teach not just ourselves, but the other people around us. And that I feel like it's just has the potential to be, you know, that could go viral. That's this like that would be awesome if people could do that. Because it it doesn't take a, a lot of time. It doesn't take a lot of effort. It takes a little bit of vulnerability and asking ourselves what's going on. And it gives us that little connection. What if we were able to knit together those, you know, little connection after little connection? I think we could actually climb ourselves out of diet culture, at least to a significant degree. Uh, but it's it's hard. And it's hard to remember to do that in the middle of feeling like you can't get dressed. Because it does feel like it's about the clothes at that point. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Well, I know you've, you've kind of hit on like so many different little things here. Um I'm just curious for you, like, uh, if you could share a little bit about where you work. And I don't know if people would want to work with you if they're they're listening, going, hey, you know, that's like Jillian, she sounds great. Like, um, you know, where where do you work and how can they find you and kind of connect? Yeah, absolutely. So a couple couple different things that I'll highlight. So I uh, my day job is as chief strategy officer for Aconto Health. And Aconto is the parent company of the EMILY program and Veritas Collaborative and Gather Behavioral Health, which are all uh, behavioral health uh, programs with focus on eating disorders. So uh, we, have a, we have programs all over the country. Um, certainly people can see more about those on the websites of the Emily Program or Veritas Collaborative or Gather. Uh, that's a great way to, to learn a little bit more about what we're doing. The um, the other piece that I, I spend some of my time doing that I'm really passionate about is work with the Eating Disorders Coalition uh, and that is a, a policy group. It's the federal policy group in D.C. focused on uh, increasing visibility of eating disorders and uh, helping Congress recognize eating disorders as a public health priority. And so the EDC has a lot of cool initiatives going. Uh, there's a lot of ways to get involved. I, I spend time working with that group and doing advocacy days and congressional briefings. And right now there's actually a bill in Congress called uh, the Kids Online Safety Act. It's abbreviated COSA, K-O-S-A. Um, so there's a lot of talk about COSA at this point that touches on some of these things we were talking about today with uh, what do we do around social media and what should the guardrails be for kids and how do parents think about that? So if uh, if policy or advocacy is something anyone's interested, I'd really encourage you to check out the eatingdisorderscoalition.org website and learn more about COSA, learn more about EDC. Uh, it's a great group and it's a great way to feel like you're making a difference. Uh, it's one of the things I love about being involved in the EDC in addition to, to what I get to do every day at work uh, is really make a difference. That that it's not going to change if we don't change it, right? <laughs> it's not going to change if we don't use our voices 
And our voices are really powerful. And as it relates uh, specifically to eating disorders, you know, people with eating disorders are the ones uh, and the and those who are, you know, in their in their lives that are impacted by the eating disorder are the ones that need to speak up because who else will if we don't? So I, I feel like it's part of what I can do to give back uh, to people uh, struggling with an eating disorder now and, and to help prevent people struggling in the future is to use my voice. So I'd encourage everybody to to get out there and use your voice. If If we don't do it, who will? So let's do it. Awesome. Thank you so much for that information. You're welcome. All right. Any last final words before we end? Oh, I'm just excited to keep thinking about it. I, you know, I think uh, as it relates to keeping the the variety of images we see going to really use our voices there to point it out to other people like, hey, did you see that picture of somebody? That's a different advertisement or that's great. Again, we're the we're the ones with the power. Let's use it uh, as people. We can make a difference. Jillian, thank you so much for your time. Lots of great information. Really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. This podcast is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information in regards to the subject matter covered. It is given with the understanding that neither the host, the publisher, or the guests are rendering legal, accounting, clinical, or any other professional information. If you want a professional, you should find one.